chapter 6. And we're looking at this chapter where Jesus keeps on using the phrase, your Father, your Heavenly Father. And uh, I'm trying to list the main privileges and blessings that come to us because God is our Father and we are his sons and his daughters. We've seen that uh, he gives us access. We have access to him. We've seen that we have the privilege of, of looking to him to reward us. We keep our eye on him. He's the one we are seeking to please. Now then, thirdly, I'm still listing these, uh, these blessings. Thirdly, we have the promise that he will provide for us, that he will meet our needs. And this is the theme of the next section of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, 19. Let, let me read it for you from verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is there, your, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what will you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so, this is the, the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has a, a section of what he wants to say, where his main point is that we live under the eye of God. We live to please him. We live for his rewards. And then that has an effect on the way in which we, we think of our possessions and things we are concerned about, life and its anxieties and pressures here in this world. And Jesus puts it negatively and positively, or he puts it with regard to what we lay up and with regard to what we are anxious about. First of all, he focuses on what we should be trying to lay up what we should, what we should be trying to accumulate. 
And he says, don't lay up earthly treasures. Don't spend all your time trying to accumulate things on, on planet Earth. Instead, lay up treasures in heaven. Again, he's still pursuing the theme of rewards. The, the idea is if you, you lay things up in the heavenly bank, one day it comes back to you. I sometimes play a, a little joke on my Kenyan friends. The Kenya is about the 17th poorest country in the world. And I sometimes play a little joke on them. I say to them, do you want to, do you want to find a way of uh, drawing out a, a million shillings next Friday? And I can tell you the congregation wakes up at that point. And uh, I say, well, it's quite easy. You just put in a million shillings on a Monday and you just go and draw it out on Friday. And there it is. <laughs> you can draw out what you put in. Well, there's something uh, of that spiritually. You put, put something in the, in the treasure of the heavenly bank. And one day you can draw upon it. It comes back to you again. Jesus uses that kind of a financial illustration. We lay up treasure, not, not in some earthly bank. We may do a little bit of that just for security's sake, but uh, that's not the main theme of our life. The main theme of our life is to be laying things up in, in heavenly glory, knowing that one day the, the rewards and the blessings of it all will come back to us, not only uh, finally, but even in, in this life. God compensates and uh, gives us things back out of the heavenly bank, the heavenly treasury. So he tells us to focus on God in, in what we're accumulating and laying up and trying to build up as our store in life. But then if you do that, you may say, well, the only trouble is that sort of tends to make me a bit anxious. The next, the next problem that leads on to then is anxiety. If you're laying up things in the heavenly realm, you tend to be a bit anxious about the, the ordinary things of life. So Jesus moves from one to the other. Therefore, it follows on, you see. Therefore, don't be anxious about your life, what you should eat and what you should drink. So he takes up the, the, the matter of anxiety. He gives them some counselling. I always regard this uh, chapter, or this particular section, as a model of counselling. If you ever have the responsibility of counselling others or helping them, how do you do it? Here in this particular section, Jesus is counselling someone, or a group of people, his disciples, in a very practical matter, anxiety. Here's a person who's prone and liable to be over-anxious, and Jesus is helping his disciples. It's a very real thing. We face the pressures of life, and in one way or another, we're likely to be anxious about this or that, or some kind of very practical problem, money or clothing or finances. And uh, Jesus is being a counsellor here. I'm always interested as to how he does it. You'll notice he doesn't do it one at a time. The, the apostles don't each go to him and say, you know, I'm really a bit anxious about uh, my finances. Will, will, you, will you pray for me? He's not doing this one at a time. He is counseling the whole lot all in one go. And I think pastors have to uh, keep this in mind. We, much of our counseling should not be one-to-one counselling. You spend all your time one-to-one counselling. It only takes about three people with really big problems and the whole of your life is consumed helping them. Uh, you, you try to help people in a practical way, you can only cope with one or two and, and their, their problems begin to pressurise you. When you, if you have 500, well, you're in trouble. You, you can't even cope with more than a few. Surely the way to counsel is that your teaching and your preaching comes down to practical details. Somewhere along the line, 
just, you just go through Scripture. If you're going through Scripture, you'll, you'll find uh, advice about money, about marriage, about divorce. Think, think of, imagine you're going through Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 19, Matthew 5, here in the Sermon on the Mount, about lust, about anxiety, about money, every, con- every conceivable subject. It all comes up in the Scriptures about him that, him that uh, stole steel no more, but uh, let him work, labor with his hands. It's all very practical things about life and labor and money and things, clothing and all these things we're anxious about. Scripture does come down to details. And if you expound the whole of Scripture, you will be counseling people in, in large numbers. And this is uh, surely the way we ought to do our counseling. Uh, counseling in, in churches ought to be uh, so much part of the pulpit, so much part of the, the ordinary exposition of Scripture, that for much of the time people don't need the one-by-one-by-one uh, one by one, uh, advice. And when they do... It's just, it's just following up what they've heard you say. They've heard you say something, and then that brings them to you. Uh, I remember once when I first went to Narobi Baptist Church, the church there said, we, we don't want you to be counseling, you spend all your time teaching and preaching. Didn't work at all, because if when you're teaching and preaching, people have any sort of sense that you know what you're saying, they will come to you. They won't come to somebody else, they won't come to somebody else because they heard you preach. That, that's highly impractical. Uh, preaching generates counseling. When, when you preach about something, if any person there touches upon their, upon their uh, situation, that person will want to talk to you. Preaching generates counseling and, um, and so on. But uh, the vast majority of counseling ought to surely be done through the pulpit. If, if one person has a problem, probably there are 20 others who will have the same problem. That one might come to you, the, the other 20 won't come to you. If you will deal with, with the one, you'll help the whole 20 all at the same time. Counseling should be done as part of the, the public application of the Word of God, and uh, we shouldn't have to spend all of our time, one by one, um, guiding people. I learned a lot in Nairobi back in the, the early years, back in the, the late 80s. I learned a lot in Nairobi at the point where we had a very fast-moving uh, lunchtime services. People would come into Nairobi, City Hall, which will hold 1,300 people, and every seat will be taken, and there'll be 200 outside who can't get in. And um, we would have a very tight uh, lunchtime service. And so it started about 5 to five to 1, and it's not moving by 1 o'clock, and everything has to be over by 1.50 at most. You do not have more than 50 minutes for the entire service. They have to be back in their office by 2 o'clock. They're all from the offices of Nairobi. And uh, yet people would want counselling. And they would come at the end of a service. Even the service was only 50 minutes long at most. And uh, 20 minutes worship, a few, 10 minutes praying publicly, maybe 20 minutes uh, preaching evangelistically and so on. But um, I did a lot of counselling in those days. Those, those meetings still go on. I'm not there so frequently as I used to be. But uh, those meetings still go on. But um, in that counselling, I very rarely had more than five minutes Someone would come to me at 1.45 and uh, he had to be back at work by 2 and, and the office would be 100 yards or so down the road. I would have four or five minutes. I would say, you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. Come back and tell me whether it works. And he would go. I would, I would have less than four minutes because of the, the pressure of a lunchtime service and those people having to be back at 2. But I can tell you, that was the best counselling ministry I ever had in my life. You don't need more than four minutes Really, if the, if the counselling is the follow-up of preaching, you're only, say, you're only saying, well, in your case, it means this. 
And there may be one or two sentences to say it's the follow-up of the preaching of God's word. Now, I learned that just because of the pressure of lunchtime services, but it, it sort of dawned on me as a result. That's the way we should do all of our counselling. I mean, really, you don't need more than a, a few minutes, as it were, follow-up of the word of God. So that's, uh, this, is, this is Jesus being the great counsellor. And his, his answer to anxiety is the fatherhood of God. Your father knows. Your father's aware of this. He looks after birds, he'll look after you. He looks after lilies. If he looks after lilies, don't you think he'll look after you? Jesus' way of counselling is to, to point them to the, the fatherhood of God and get them to, to trust that they are God's sons and daughters. They don't really need to panic about this. If they see that God is their father, all will be well. But this is, I'm interested in this as Jesus' way of counselling. And then I'm interested also in what, what he does not do. I think when you read your Bible, you should notice what does not happen as much as what does happen. Often the things that don't happen are as interesting as the things that do happen. And you'll notice there's no shadow of a ghost of a hint here that Jesus says, well, come forward and let me pray for you. I've got the spirit of deliverance. I can see you're anxious. You need to be uh, delivered from anxiety. All those who've got uh, anxiety problems, come forward. I will pray for you and you'll be delivered from the spirit of anxiety. That's what we do nowadays, isn't it? Mainly, most of the time, we, we deliver people from the spirit of anxiety. But there's nothing like that in the story of Jesus. You never read of Jesus doing anything like that, nor, nor the apostle nor anybody else. Uh, Jesus doesn't uh, say, well, I've got his deliverance ministry. I'm going to help you be delivered, rescued from your anxiety. Come forward, and we, we and my disciples, we're going to pray for you. There's nothing like that in this, uh, in this story. In, indeed, it's far from being like that. What Jesus does is he argues with them. He reasons with them like, like a kind of philosopher. He's, he's, he's being argumentative. Listen, think, he says. Look at the birds of the air. Aren't you more of more value than they? Uh, and are you, are you adding anything to your life by your anxiety? And uh, are, you, are you doing any good, this uh, anxiety of yours? And uh, don't, don't you think you've not got very much faith? He, he's not. He's not uh, even teaching them. It's a kind of teaching, but it's not just a pure fact-by-fact-by-fact fact fact teaching. It, it is argumentative teaching. He's reasoning. He's saying, well, think. Be logical. How, how can you say God will look after some, some, some little sparrow up on the ground, but he won't look after me? It's illogical. He, he is doing his counselling by getting people to think. And uh, I believe this is largely what counselling is. Counselling is largely taking things that people already know and then saying, well, now, now think of the implications of this. You, you say you believe that God is the creator. You say that he believes he's arranged the universe such that birds get fed and lilies get clothed. That's, that's what you say you believe. But if you believe that, what does that imply for you? It, it's largely working out the implications of what they say they already believe. And this is largely what, what um, counselling is. Indeed, sometimes you have to tell people not to pray. Have you ever done that? Have you ever counselled somebody not to pray? Remember um, just the story of Achan and uh, Joshua in Joshua chapter 7 where the, the people are uh, all praying because they've just been defeated as they try to conquer that city Ai. And God comes to them and says, get up, get up, what are you doing praying? What are you doing praying? You're not meant to be praying. Someone's stolen something unclean. Get, go and deal with that. He's rebuking them for praying. How about that? 
Sometimes we need to be told not to pray. I think of the story that Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to tell. He used to tell the story of a woman who was uh, afraid, let me see if I can remember it, I think she was afraid of thunderstorms, of, of lightning and thunder, and, and times when there was a, a storm, and every time there was a kind of storm, and uh, she would be terrified. She had a kind of phobia about, about storms and thunder and lightning. It would terrify her every time she was in that kind of situation and came to see Dr. Lloyd-Jones. I suppose it was when Dr. Lloyd-Jones was uh, in South Wales, you know, like, Gloomy, dark place, South Wales. Is, or the gloomy hills of darkness. Look, my soul, be still and great. You know, South Wales and the Black Mountains. But, uh, and she would be terrified about these thunderstorms. And she came to Dr. Lloyd-Jones and said, you know, Dr. People used to call him the doctor. Doctor, uh, you know, I've prayed about it. Lloyd-Jones said to her, first thing you must do is stop praying. Don't ever, don't ever pray about it again. And that rather sort of uh, surprised her. He said, don't pray, think. Think who God is. Think what God's done for you. Think how you're saved. Think that you're everlastingly in the kingdom. Think of God's power. Don't even pray. Start thinking. Next time it happens, you don't even pray at all. Start thinking and just realize who God is. Sometimes you have to tell people not to pray. And sometimes when you've got some sin in your life, you spend all your time praying about it. And the more you pray, the worse the sin becomes. Sometimes you need to be told not to pray. Sometimes it's not a time for prayer. It's a time for action. Or it's a time for thinking. And praying is not, not the right thing to do at all. I think sometimes we, uh, we use prayer as a cop-out. We don't go and pray about it, we say. Well, that's all right, but uh, if it's replacing uh, thinking or action or something God's calling us to, to, to know, sometimes we're not called to, to do something, but to know something or to grasp hold of something. And that rescues us. It's not the praying that rescues us. It's the... It's the uh, just being logical and outworking what we say we know. So that's what Jesus does. Jesus is not saying, well, let's pray about it, or go away and pray about your anxiety, pray that the Lord will take it away. He's not saying anything like that. And that's what I mean when I say that sometimes we ought to notice what is not there as much as what is there. When you're reading your book of Acts and seeing all the churches, all the things the churches are doing in the book of Acts, well, it's worth noting all the things they're not doing. All the things that we're doing, which you never ever could find in the book of Acts, if it's not in the book of Acts, why are we doing it? If it's not in the church at its best, when, it, when the church is full of revival and life, and they're reaching everybody, and there's certain things they are not doing, then why are we doing them? But Paul doesn't march into, a, into Philippi and saying, well, let's have a prayer meeting, I want to I pray for your businesses, pray that God will prosper you. He's not doing things like that. You can draw up a whole list of things that the, the Bible, the, the, the evangelists of Scripture are not doing. As I say, sometimes it's worth noticing What's not there? I don't, I don't mean that we can't do things that are not explicitly mentioned in the Bible, because we can. But uh, it is worth knowing uh, that when we've got something dominating our life and our methods, that it's not in the New Testament, that ought to make us raise a few questions. Are, are we following the New Testament? Are we not? I don't think we have to be doing identically what was done in the first century, but surely it should be roughly cinema. Surely it should have some, some resemblance to what goes on in the book of Acts or in the ministry of Jesus or whatever it is. But sometimes it's worth noticing the differences and what's missing. It's a kind of negative way of expounding scripture. But sometimes it's helpful to do that. But uh, what does Jesus do positively? Well, what he does positively is he gets them to think. He said, now I'm telling you something. I tell you. Don't be anxious. He gives them a direct command. And then he begins to argue with them and uh, reason with them. And if they think about these things, 
clearly and logically they'll be all right. But the basis of everything, the undergirding basis of the whole of what he says is your You've got a heavenly father. He's the creator. He's the Lord. He knows. If only you will work out what it means that you have a heavenly father, you will be all right. And so he asks them to just observe the way creation is. Don't be anxious. Don't be bothered about these things. And he gives them a whole string of arguments. The first one is, is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. The first thing is, when you get anxious, you're always getting anxious about small things. Money and clothing and food. These are really small things. Surely it's the whole of life that really is what matters. Your entire relationship to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole God of the universe and the Creator. Here you are worrying about this, this petty little detail. This little bit of money or this little bit of life or clothing or this little bit of food. But, but hold, hang on a bit. The whole of life is a much bigger issue. You're spending all your time on some little, little detail. This is a very big principle in Scripture. We should, have, we should always have in life a sense of proportion. One thing that anxiety does is it, it, makes, it gets you everything out of proportion. We, we make a mountain out of a molehill, as, as we say in English idiom. We take some little thing and it's filling our entire horizon. But, but, that's, but, that's, but life is not all about some clothing or your salary or this little thing you're worried about. No, no, you're, you're missing the whole because you're focusing upon a detail. You're making a mountain out of some little molehill. If only you had a sense of perspective, if only you could see the bigness of life and all that God is doing for you, you'd be all right. And this, this is something the Bible often does. The Bible often uh, wants us to have a sense of proportion. Remember how Paul says on one occasion, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. You know, they were arguing about whether to be vegetarian or whether you could drink alcohol or whether you kept some holy day. And Paul says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see the point? You're worrying about this little bit of food, whether you've got to be a vegetarian or not, or whether you've got to keep this holy day, or whether it's wicked to go to the cinema or drink a glass of wine. Yes, that's small, petty things. The kingdom of God is not those things. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace with people, getting on well with people, and righteousness of heart and integrity before God, joy in the Holy Spirit. And while you're fighting about these petty little things, you're not righteous, you have no peace and there's no joy. You're losing the big thing because you're fighting over the little thing. That's Paul's way of dealing with it. Or you remember how there was all these divisions in Corinth. Can we, can we, must we follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas? Paul says, well, they're all yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or life or death or things present or things... It all belongs to you. Why are you, why are you fighting over... Can, can, must I be a Baptist or a Methodist? And the whole lot of all belongs to you. I mean, it's small and petty. You see how the Bible is always trying to get us to have a big sense of proportion. What matters is life, the totality of life. Every single thing belongs to us, whether we live, whether we die. It all belongs to us, life or death. All things are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Everything belongs to you. And don't have this small anxiety over little petty things in life. That's Jesus' first argument. Is not life bigger than all these little things you are worrying about? Or remember how Paul puts it with regard to suffering. He sees these little, he's almost a... He's almost sneering at them, these petty, small, little, light afflictions. They are working for us an exceeding weight of glory. You see, he's doing the same thing again. 
these little troubles of ours. They're just, they're just nothing. Little empty little titty little things. Put, put them in the scales. Here on one side is, is these little afflictions of life. Well, they're so small and trivial. But put them on the other side, this exceeding weight of glory. And the scales are, are altogether different. You've got a sense of the correct balance, what really matters in life. This is the way in which the Bible counsels people. Can I ask you, did you ever counsel anybody like that? You see, I think most of us, when we talk about counselling or encouraging, we say, well, cheer up, it'll all be well, and God loves you, it'll be all right in the end, don't worry too much, let me, let me give you a nice sleeping tablet, you know, it all will be well. The Bible's way of encouraging is manly, it's virile, it's strong. These petty things, you've got an exceeding weight of glory. That's what you eat on a... Whether you, whether you keep the Sabbath or not. Uh, these, things, these things are not important. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. The Bible gives us a sense of balance and proportion. And Jesus does the same. Isn't life bigger altogether than these petty little things that you are worried about? There's his, there's his first argument. To, to make them a, have a sense of proportion. But then he puts it like this. this, this. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you nor of, not of more value than they? Now again, he's being logical. In fact, Aristotle would have liked this. Aristotle, the inventor of logic and reason, he would have loved this. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God will do the lesser thing, won't he do the big thing? It is perfect Aristotelian logic. Aristotle would have loved it. If God cares for some little sparrow, some little titchy thing like this, won't, won't he care for you who's so much bigger? It's what Aristotle would have called an argument from the lesser to the greater. If the lesser is true, surely the greater is even more true. If God will care for some little sparrow. He's arranged the universe. The whole universe is arranged so the sparrows, generally speaking, get fed. The whole universe is getting, I mean, those, those little creatures of the, of the air, they're, they're not worried. They're not saying, what are we going to have for lunch today? Where, where can I find this next worm? No sparrow is worrying. His, the creation is just organized such that they are provided for. But if God arranges the universe to, to provide for a sparrow, don't you think he'll arrange the universe to provide for you? It's just a failure in logic to think that God will, will feed some little bird that's going to perish in a few days' time, but that he won't care for you. It is illogical. Jesus rebukes their sense of logic. How can God be caring for sparrows but not care for you? And so the sense of logic ought to hold you. Some people are more, than, more logical than others, but you ought to have at least enough logic for that to hold you when you are in trouble. Just think. If God feeds the tiniest little creatures on the planet, most of the time, I know, I know all about modern ecology and so on, but uh, if most of the time God's arranged the universe, the, the tiniest creatures get fed, won't he surely do something similar for you? At that point, you relax. At that point, you're all right. Your sense of logic, your sense of proportion is holding you. You know this must work out. God's the one who's in control. It's a question of elementary thinking. He uses an, an argument from the lesser to the greater. And then he uses a, a practical argument. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? You, spend, you, you stay awake all night and, uh, 
and you're really anxious, you, 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 can't get, you can't sort of get to sleep at night, you're worried about it, you keep on thinking, your mind goes over and over and over, this thing, there you are. What's it doing for you? Are you healthier? No. Are you going to live any longer? No. Uh, are you, are you, have you solved your problem? No, it's still there. So, so what have you achieved? What have you achieved? Well, this, this nice of restlessness, what did it do? I mean, surely it's common sense. If something is not helping you at all, you, you better quit doing it. I mean, what's, the use, what's the use of something which is achieving absolute zero in your life? This is what anxiety does. It achieves absolute zero. It doesn't help the thing at all. All it does is it disqualifies you for being able to handle it. If anything, it's doing you more harm than good. Surely it's a matter of elementary logic that something is, that is damaging you and unfitting you for life, you better not pursue it. What, what good is it doing you, says Jesus? It's not even a spiritual argument. Jesus isn't being spiritual at all. Indeed, an unconverted person could have said that. You don't even need to be able to, to be saved to see that. And any, any Tom, Dick and Harry can see wasting all your time in anxiety is not, is not very productive. You don't even have to be saved to, to say it. Sometimes the greatest arguments are not spiritual development at all. They're just plain common sense. Sometimes we just have to be able to think. But to think spiritually, to think uh, in a kind of kingdom way, to think, to, to build out a very mentality upon the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his character. He's thinking about the character. God is my Father. My Father's all-powerful. My Father loves me. My Father con- controls everything in the world. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without he knows about it. The very hairs of my head are, 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 are numbered. He knows about me. What, what am I doing worrying? It's just a, a matter of seeing the character of God, knowing that he's your Father, he has, no, he has no intention of, uh, of quitting being your father. He's staying there as your father. You're in his hands. And you ought to come to peace. Uh, I'm, almost, I'm almost daring to say you ought to come by, to peace by sheer logic. Sheer, sheer, the sheer facts of the situation ought to totally give you peace. As long as you're thinking spiritually. Creation should, um, should, uh, make them, should be able to rescue them from this problem. And then he, when he works it out again, think about the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, but Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. I mean, what is more beautiful than a flower, a beautiful flower in, in its brightness of colour, a rose, a lily, a bougainvillea. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't have any mind, it has no mentality, the flower doesn't have a brain, it's not a rational thinking creature. It's just a thing. Doesn't even have doesn't even have any consciousness of how beautiful it is. And I say, why should God bother making something beautiful? Doesn't even know it's being beautiful. God just likes things that are beautiful. You say, well, why did God make lilies to be beautiful? He just enjoys the fun of it. That's, that's the way His creation is. Basically, it's beautiful. Even though creation is fallen, which it is, it's damaged. Our creation is damaged. There are ugly things in it. Yet even though there are ugly, damaged bits of our creation, there's enough beauty there for us to see how much God loves beauty. And even, even the colors of the, of the field are beautiful. Have you ever thought of what the world would be like if everything was colored blue instead of green? The only color you can easily live with in nature is green. You think about that. It's meant everything was red. Everything was, was a bright scarlet. You could hardly endure it. You get fed up with it, bored with it. The only colour that's sort of peaceful and you enjoy it and you like being with it is green. Even colours, God knows what he's doing. 
and the, the beauty of creation. It's damaged. It's, it's, uh, sometimes it can be ugly. You being an earthquake, you won't talk about the beauties of creation. You see a, a lion tear apart a, uh, an animal, a, a deer, you won't talk about the beauty of creation. You'll talk about the ugliness of creation. But even though creation is damaged and fallen, there's still enough beauty there to know what the original creation must have been like and what the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells will be like. And if, but if God makes lilies that have got no consciousness or uh, enjoyment of their own beauty just for, fun, just for the fun of it and uh, clothes them so beautiful that even Solomon with all of his imported gold, the richest guy there ever was on the planet, even Solomon in all of his glory he could not produce the kind of beauty of one lily. One flower, one tree. If Solomon, in all his glory, couldn't be so beautifully arrayed as even a, some flowers on the piano, don't you think if God clothes a flower on a piano, he can clothe you? He, he, can, he can provide just what you need, even in the area of clothing. He can do it. Well, why, why are you worried about such things? And then he questions their faith. It says, if God so clothes the, the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He rebukes them a little bit and says, well, look, look you know, if you're anxious, you're, you're being unbelieving. At that point, your faith is, is small. There's such a thing as little faith. And there's such a thing as great faith. It doesn't matter what kind of faith you've got to save you. Your, any faith will save you. Even the tiniest faith in Jesus is enough to save you. But then, having put your faith in Jesus, you then have to apply your faith. You then have to work it out in practical situations when your money is running low or there's economic crisis or you, you, you've got no clothes for the moment, no decent clothes for the moment. And at that point, it's not so much that you need saving faith. It's more that you need applied faith. You need to apply your faith and put it into... Uh, into action when you're in trouble and need. And if you ever notice, it's easier to trust in the Lord for a million years than it is to trust in the Lord for tomorrow morning. You know, when you get saved, you, you're putting your faith in Jesus to give you eternal life, everlasting life. You're believing that you are going to be saved forever. You are being given eternal life. You, it's being given to you. You will never perish. You're believing for eternal life. But then tomorrow morning you get up and, and you've got no money. Or, or you've got some practical problem. And now you're panicking and you're alarmed and you're scared. It's easier to, to believe in the Lord for everlasting life than it is when you get up on Monday, for, for some problem on, on a Monday morning. And you see, we are called not only to have saving faith, but applied faith. Faith that will apply itself. Well, if the Lord saved me, he's going to help here. And you see it everywhere in, in the scriptures. Jesus is always talking about... Uh, Little faith and applied faith and other parts of the Bible. What's the difference between little faith and great faith? Well, it's the same thing again. It's not that little faith prays a lot. It's not that great faith prays a lot and little faith doesn't pray much. It's not that great faith uh, has got a lot of theological knowledge and uh, little faith doesn't know very much. No, it's not that. No, the difference between little faith and big faith is little faith doesn't think. And big faith does. Little faith says... Oh, I was saved, but now I'm in trouble. No, you're not thinking. If God saves you on a Sunday, he won't look after you on a Monday. I mean, a little bit of elementary thinking will, as it will, rescue you. And uh, 
You see, Jesus is, is rebuking them for not thinking, for not saying, well, if he, if he looks after the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, he looks after me. That's little faith. It's not thinking. It's not working out your faith. Work out your faith with fear and trembling. Great faith is when you do think. Great faith is when you, you work something out and you build your whole life on what you've worked out because you do believe. Remember uh, Jesus and how he relates to the centurion who, who brings his son. He says, please heal, heal my son. And Jesus says, yeah, I'll, I'll, come, I'll come and heal him. And the man says, no, you don't have to. And the Lord says, well, why is that? And he says, well, you know, I, I know all about authority. You don't even need to come. I know about authority. I'm an army officer. I just command something, gets done, whether I go there or not. So I just, I just speak and I have to do what, I do what I'm telling them. And if I can do it, well, you can do it even more. If I, if I, if I have my little bit of authority as a, as a soldier, can just speak and things get done, well, you as the, as the son of God, surely you can do that even more. You don't have to come. Just speak. It'll be done. The man is thinking. The man is being logical. If I can do it, well, he can do it. It's just a matter of elementary logic again. And you remember what Jesus says. He says, oh, I've never found such faith. No, not even in Israel. This, this Gentile, pagan guy, he's got more faith than all you Jews. I've never found such faith. And many will come in and they'll sit down with Abraham. Gentiles from, 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 from all over the place will come and sit down in the kingdom with Abraham because they've got this kind of faith. Well, sometimes it'll be the other way around. There'll be a great storm. And uh, remember how Jesus is, is asleep in the middle of a storm. He's got total peace, even if a storm takes place. He's not even waking him up. He's perfectly at peace. doesn't even wake him up. He's relaxed and at ease. But the disciples, they're, they're panicking. They're going to drown any moment. The, boat, the boats are tossing and turning and they throw them overboard at any moment. They're, they're, they're alarmed. Finally, they wake him up. Lord, 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 wake up, wake up. Don't, don't you care? We're perishing. They're panicking and alarmed and complaining. And Jesus, who's been asleep, just says one word, peace be still, and, and the whole storm is calmed. And then he says, where was your faith? I know you've got it, but where is it? What are you done with it? You've lost it somewhere. Where, where's this faith? You're meant to be bringing your faith out and using it in a storm. You're meant to be thinking. You don't have to wake me up and start shouting at me. Just, just think of it. How, how can the Son of God drown in a storm? It's, it's, it's illogical. Where is your faith? Little faith is when your faith seems to disappear somewhere. Uh, and you're not using it anymore. You're not using it at the moment. You're still, you're still safe. You haven't lost your salvation. But you're not using it. You're not thinking, working it out. Think your faith out. And Paul's always, always doing this. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? You, you see there's a kind of argument there. Well, maybe I might need something and I perish and I lose my salvation because I need something and I can't get it. I need some help or some forgiveness. Well, well, says Paul, just think a moment. He who spared not his own son. Just now we had an argument from the lesser to the greater. Here's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He who spared not his own son. The biggest thing he ever could possibly give you. He's given, he's given you his own son. But if he's given you this biggest thing that ever he could ever give, how shall he not also with him give you all things? If, he, if he's done the big thing, won't, won't he do the little thing? You, you go out and you, you're a rich guy and you go out and you, you buy a Mercedes. Won't you buy a gallon of petrol to, 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 to drive the thing with? 
You buy a Mercedes, won't you go and get a license? If, if, you, if you do the big thing, won't you do the little thing to actually drive the car? If you do the big thing, won't you do the little thing? If God has done the big thing, won't he do the little thing? If he spared not his own son, won't he give you anything else which is far, far smaller and trivial and unnecessary and, 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 and insignificant compared to the bigness of, of God giving his own son? And incidentally, how much did God charge you when he gave you Jesus? He gave you to him freely. Listen, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he gave you Jesus free, he'll give you everything else free as well. It's just elementary logic. You should feel safe. There is nothing that you need to be kept in the kingdom of God, which God will not give you if necessary. He who spared not his own son. Or, or listen to Paul in Romans chapter 5. You see, the Bible is a very logical book. It's, it's not sort of pagan logic. It's not a, the kind of logic that feels it knows everything. But it's spiritual not logic. Listen to this, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If when we were enemies, God stepped into our life and rescued us and reconciled us, we, we were rebels, we'd sinned against him, we had no saviour, we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we didn't have eternal life, we were nothing, and when we were enemies, God stepped into our lives and he reconciled us to himself by the death of his son. Now that we are reconciled, do you think he loves us less now that we're saved? It's just, it's, just, it's just crazy to think that God loved us when we were his enemies, but doesn't love us now we're his friends. It's back to front and illogical. If while we were enemies he saved us by the death of his son, now that we are reconciled, well, will, will we not be saved and rescued and brought through every possible problem by his life at work in us? You see, this is what I mean when I say that Jesus just uses elementary Logic. It's not a pagan logic. It's not the kind of logic that assumes it knows everything. Pay, trouble with pagan logic is that uh, we think we know everything. It can only be logical if you know everything that's relevant. If you don't know everything that's relevant, then logic doesn't work. Blaise Pascal, the Jansenist, Roman Catholic Jansenist of the 16th century, said... The supreme achievement of reason is to know that there's a limit to reason. The supreme achievement of reason is to know that there's a limit to reason. Logic will take you only so far. You, you, there's a kind of limit to it. You, you don't, you, you'll never be able to answer all the problems of life. So it's not pagan logic which tries to master everything because it's so clever. It's not pagan logic. It's spiritual logic, logic that... Uh, takes the facts of our salvation and builds life upon them. This, this is the way in which Jesus counsels us. And, but the bottom line of it all is that God is our Father. Won't your heavenly Father feed you as he feeds them? And don't you know your heavenly Father knows? Your heavenly Father knows that you seek all these things. It, the, the foundation of the whole thing is that God is our Father. And he's done so much. If he's done the big things, he'll do the little things. If he's done the little things, he'll do the things that are even bigger. We don't need to have the slightest anxiety about anything. And incidentally, anxiety is sin. Because Jesus commands us. He's commanding us, don't be anxious. Sin is, a dis is disobedient to a command, isn't it? 
Jesus commands something, you don't do it, you're disobedient. When you start thinking of anxiety as sin, you'll be on your way to being rescued from it. You're commanded, don't be anxious. Paul does the same, don't be anxious. But by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, you begin by praising God and worshipping him. You let your requests be made known. You're not praying in a panicky way. And the peace of God will guard. It's what a kind of century, uh, a guard doing duty, walking around the walls of your life. He'll guard your hearts, the very thing that gets so upset and emotional, and your minds, when your mind is wandering all over the place without thinking clearly. The peace of God that passes understanding, a kind of supernatural peace, will guard your thinking, it will guard your emotions, and you will be in perfect peace, totally free from anxiety. This is the way we're meant to live. If we did this this way, the world would notice. The world would say, well, you know, you, you don't seem to be very worried. No, it's all right. You know, I've got a saviour. And the world would say, well, I've never known anybody yet. How can you be in such trouble? Could it be at total peace? Well, I can tell you. That's what impresses the world. The world's not impressed by our great doctrine and our, our great singing and our great organisation, our great churches. The world is impressed by when it sees something, it knows that it does not have. Joy, peace, sense of the presence of God. I think, I think it's a more evangelistic power than to be totally at peace and everybody else is panicking. Here we are, economic crisis, Muslim invasion. Shouldn't worry you in the least. God is the king. God is the Lord. He does things in a surprising way. When, when everything is going wrong, I like to put it like this, when everything is going wrong, everything is going right in a funny way. It, it, God works all things together for good. Things don't go wrong, actually. They, they, just, go, they just go right in a strange way. All things being worked together for good to those who, those who are called, those who love him. The reason why they love him is because they're called. The reason why they're called is because there's a purpose. Back behind it all is the purpose of God, the plan of God. They love him and they're called and they know that they're in God's purpose. And so Jesus advises us to live upon his fatherhood, your heavenly father. And so what it means in practice is that we just put God's kingdom first. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. What does he mean by all these things? I answer anything you might be worried about. I was preaching on this once many, many years ago and a young guy came to see me. He said, he said that verse, he said, that, that verse you quoted, all these things, all these things. He said, can I ask a question? Does it include a wife? You know, you know, I'm really sort of anxious about being married. Does it include a wife? All these things. I said to him, if it's a need, yes, it includes a wife. All these things. Anything you might be worried about. Anything you might be anxious about. All these things. And you would think that Jesus st- would stop there. It's, it's bad style if you're preaching to go beyond your climax. When you finish, you better shut up. Bad, it's bad style to go on when you've come to your climax. But you know, sometimes things are more important than style. Sometimes you've said you've made your biggest crescendo, but there's still one more thing to be said. Here's Jesus, he's more or less finished. You think he's finished. And he gets to verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, all these things, and all these things will be given unto you. You think he's going to stop there. 
Oh no, he's got one more thing to say. He, he throws in something which spoils his style. It spoils his, uh, his climax, his crescendo. What it means is, he's got one more thing to throw in. What it means is, take one day at a time. And that's, the, that's what it really means. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Just let each day's troubles be the only thing you worry about. Just cope with today. Let tomorrow take care of itself. Take one day at a time. He's spoiling his style. But the truth is more important than style. The truth is more important than beautiful language. A nice, a nice three-point sermon. He's spoiling his style. But some things are more important than style. And he's got one more word for you. Take one day at a time. Know that God is your father. Refuse to be anxious. And you'll be all right. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll teach us not to be anxious, that you'll teach us to take one day at a time, that you'll teach us to be good counsellors, to help people when they're in trouble. Teach us to think ourselves and know how to get other people to think. Teach us and train us and be us, make us to be useful servants in your kingdom, understanding how to find peace ourselves and understanding how to give others peace as well. Just as Jesus did, speaking to his disciples, he knew peace. Here he is giving them perfect peace by taking one day at a time, trusting in God their Father. Teach us to do the same, just to be like Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.